Welcome to Shore Words, the ASPM podcast of coastal literature, the factual and fictional accounts that transport us toward the shore. I'm Leslie Ewing, host of Shore Words, and in each episode, I talk with authors about their coastal writing and with coastal leaders about their tales and stories that inspired their chosen paths. Today, it's my great pleasure to be talking with John Englander, oceanographer and author of both High Tide on Main Street and now moving to higher ground, talking with him about his books and then a little bit about his favorite writing as well. But first, I'll pause for some information from our sponsors. The American Shoreline Podcast Network and CoastalNewsToday.com are brought to you by LJA Engineering. With 28 offices along the Gulf Coast, the folks at LJA Engineering are at the top of the craft in the areas of coastal restoration, coastal infrastructure, rivers and channels, numerical modeling, disaster recovery, and design and construction oversight. Be sure to check out their brand new Coastal Resilience Department, headed up by ASPN's own Peter Ravella. Find them at lja.com. Be sure to subscribe to the Coastal News Today Daily Blast newsletter at coastalnewstoday.com for daily updates on the events and news that shape the coastal discussion. Want to support the discussion and promote your company? We have sponsorship packages available now. Email me to learn more at chloe at coastalnewstoday.com. That's C-H-L-O-E at coastalnewstoday.com. Hope to hear from you and enjoy the show. John, in your books, you share a lot about your, or some about your your past, your background, and how you've gotten to the point of having your views and opportunities to have been exposed to so much about sea level rise, those issues, and to be in so many of the communities where it's a problem. But could you say a little bit about your past, your background, and what got you to where you where you are now with your writing? Sure, Leslie. It's great to be with you. Um, this journey that got me uh, to be explaining sea level rise as a special aspect of climate change, but really which is going to change coastlines all over the world, began, I hate to say, 50 years ago without my really seeing where it was headed. But in college, I was studying geology and I was a diving instructor uh, working in the summers in the Bahamas. And uh, as you may have noted in one of my books, I, I back in 1970, I was diving rather deep in the Bahamas, and I saw some shelves uh, which looked like miniature beaches. And long story short, when I brought that back to my geology professor in Pennsylvania the next semester, we realized that's when sea level was 200 feet lower, and it got my interest. And over the course of my uh, decades, both in the diving world and um, oceanography, and uh, then working with Jacques Cousteau, which was a great privilege just before he died. But everything kept pointing me to looking at the world through this lens of sea level and the shoreline. And I had learned early on that sea level moved up and down vertically hundreds of feet, more than a hundred meters with the ice age cycles. I thought it was all theoretical though, in terms of its practical impact until uh, about the year 2000. Uh, and when we started realizing the earth was warming, the ice on Greenland and Antarctica was melting and sea level would be higher than in all of human civilization, looking back about 6,000 years. So it was then that I decided to write my first book. My first day in Greenland, I realized there was a story to tell here. And uh, that's been my path ever since. My first book came out in 2012. And um, now that's 
really all I do is explain sea level rise in the context of climate change. But what does it mean for coastal communities, um, nations, and individuals as we look into a really a strange new world when the sea will be higher? That's so true. And I, I actually had the wonderful experience of using a submersible on the shelves in the Bahamas. And they do, I mean, to have gone down there, I already knew of the idea of sea level rise, was a believer that it was happening, it had happened in the past, but to see those shelves and just realize that, you know, if I wanted to, I could have gotten out of the submersible and walked on that beach, of course, needing to be able to stay underwater. But it's such a, a clear view of all those changes. But then also like you, it was sort of like, wow, this was a long time ago. I mean, there might've been dinosaurs on this beach. And to put it into better context of where we are today, it's such an important part of what you're doing. And I, um, I've, I've thought often that there's at least one book in each of us, but now you've got two. And um, I'm so glad that you are continuing to write about sea level rise. What do you see are the differences between when you put together High Tide on Main Street and now that you've worked on moving to higher ground? What are the messages that have changed from those two books? Well, the melting is accelerating in Greenland and Antarctica, which is the two places that store 98% of the, of the uh, water that can turn it, or ice that can turn into sea level. So we, we are seeing changes there, and I, I lead fact-finding groups there typically once a year. And uh, it's amazing to see it on the ground or, or on the ice, I should say. The, um, the growing awareness helps. I mean, yes, uh, on August 9th this year, the IPCC, of course, came out with its latest report that comes out every about six years or so, talking about the climate science. But the biggest thing I think that I've seen since the first book in 2012, High Tide on Main Street, and today is I've given hundreds of talks in that um, nine-year period, literally hundreds of talks, uh, to all manner of audiences from um, uh, military leadership to uh, intelligence agencies to small communities to uh, church groups to uh, environmental groups to investors and um, skeptical conservatives, etc. And uh, and what I've noticed is there's there is a growing awareness, yet we embrace change slowly. I mean, technology change, you know, the, like the latest iPhone, of course, we embrace that quickly. But to think that the world is going to change, that sea level will be five or 10 feet higher, two or three meters than what we've known for the 6,000 years of human recorded history. That's really hard for us to accept. And what, what I've learned in, in that decade, let's call it, is we really have to put this into stories, as you say, and I like the way you introduce your own, this podcast as stories. That's how we learn. And the story of me diving, you know, 200 feet underwater back in 1970 and finding that shoreline and you with your submersible, those stories people remember. And, and in my new book, Moving to Higher Ground, I rely a lot more on stories. And I also try and tackle the psychological political and social resistance to believing that the sea is going to be 10 feet higher 
and uh, you'll I'm sure you noticed that that in the last uh, third of the book is really trying to put it in a frame that people will not only understand but embrace. And I talk about the glass being half full rather than half empty. I mean, the half empty is the problem of sea level rising. The half full is that actually we have decades to begin adapting while we're making some effort to slow the warming and we need to do both. Um, so I'm just trying to be more practical and I guess psychological um, to, to get to people in a way that will connect, inspire or motivate them, you know, to begin planning for a world when sea level is at least 10 feet higher, three meters, which is hard to imagine. And it's hard for me to imagine in some ways because I'm, you know, sort of toward the next career of my life, but I've been um, wandering this planet for many decades. And the thought of 10 more feet of sea level rise is sort of outside of my lifetime comprehension. But for so many people with whom I work and I talk and I meet outside, when, when we used to meet people outside before the pandemic, it's within their lifetimes. And I, I think that we do have to, as you say, you know, think about the longer term consequences. You've picked 30 years in your book as sort of a time period through which you think people might be able to plan and that fits with the mortgage term and kind of a, a it fits with a lot of sort of the ways we deal with the world today. But it also maybe isn't the long-term plan. But talk about your your interest in that 30-year plan and the nine-box matrix that you've put together to help people kind of, in a simplified way, walk through risk and time periods and rising sea level. Great. Thank you. Um, so the reason I picked 30 years is that, again, trying to think about how do we assimilate or, or process or how can we get our arms around a problem. Most people's concern about flooding is when the next hurricane, you know, is going to devour their beach or just other forms of coastal erosion or the flooding we see, which are short-term events during storms, uh, extreme high tides or heavy rainfall events. And uh, we want to deal with the problems that we face, you know, today or yesterday or, or maybe tomorrow. Um, and that's understandable the climate community tends to talk about the year 2100 as a benchmark, which is still 79 years away. And of course is irrelevant to most people. It's just too hard to imagine. And I kind of stumbled upon this thing about what's the best time horizon and 30 years, I believe is the right time horizon, because as you noted, it's a home mortgage for many people. Most people think they'll be alive 30 years from now. And, and certainly it's, it's a, a generation basically. And when we think out 30 years, mid-century, I mean, and it's not like an exact 30 years, but roughly three decades, it allows us to see the world very differently and gives us perspective to plan and adapt that may not be there this year. But the problem with thinking just this year is that you can't, sea level rise is going to be negligible, less than an inch, and seems trivial. But sea level rise from the melting ice on Antarctica and Greenland and the thermal expansion of seawater, which are the, the things that will raise global sea level, sea level rise um, can happen quickly in the next decade, 
But like the pandemic, it can mount up very surprisingly and abruptly and catch us off guard and get to exponential growth as it has in geologic history. Most people aren't aware, but 11,000 years ago, sea level was rising at the rate of 15 feet a century by nature. And, and 120,000 years ago, sea level got 25 feet higher than present. So we need to learn something about geologic history because it will give proof of what's just starting to happen now. So true. I've, I, I'm an engineer by training and I work with geologists and I'm always accused of having that short-term view of looking at maybe the next 50 to 75 years for new development of buildings and the geologists kind of, that's a blip in their world. But they, they also understand that those are the time periods in which people make decisions and such. But there's there's always that little tension about what time periods do we use and how do we keep them all in perspective and balance them out. And you also mentioned sort of that idea of a five-year time period for that recent kind of near-term stuff that might be happening. And you, yeah, so it's it's kind of, I think we all do this in our heads anyway, but trying to put it in a roadmap of how you address climate change with these different time periods and and, and such is, is a really challenging thing. And I, I think you've opened up that discussion quite well in your book. Let me, let me go back to, you also brought up the nine box matrix, which is in the book. And I, so let me jump back on that because it gets this, this concept of short, medium, and long-term and worst case, best case, and you know, something in between that's the not that's, it looks like a tic-tac-toe board. Um, but as you suggest, we, if you think out five, five or 10 years, you know, near term, um, I mean, that's fine for planning at a city level or selling your house and moving it or something like that. But again, sea level is not going to change in five or 10 years. I mean, there's no way to melt enough ice to see an appreciable amount of sea level rise in the next five or 10 years. So that's really near term. When we get out 30 years, um, some bad things can happen with sea level. We, we could have a couple of feet, half a meter of sea level by mid-century. So that starts to get our attention. But we still can't get meters, I don't believe, unless the most catastrophic things happened in Antarctica. Um, and we shouldn't assume that'll happen, but uh, from a realistic standpoint. But if we think out short, medium, and long-term, we do that all the time in life, whether it be planning our, you know, for our retirement or education or our kids growing up or you know, career path, short, medium, and long-term. And so if short-term is a couple of decades during which sea level by itself is not going to rise that much. But then we get to midterm, mid-century, 30 years, 30 to 50 years out. That's the second time window. And the third time window is long-term. And that to me is 100 years or longer. So that's now the year 2121. <laughs> and in the year 2121, who, knew, who knows what the world will be like? However, it is very possible that we will have three, four, or five meters. And that's 10 15 or 20 feet effectively for sea level rise. And that will dramatically change the maps of the entire world. Uh, there's 140 nations that border on the ocean. And while we tend to think of communities like Miami or New Orleans or Venice or, you know, New York City or Boston, I mean, that we can go around the world and look for places that are vulnerable to higher water. But the truth is, if you think about it, sea, global sea level which 
defines the coastline and the property bounds in roughly 10,000 communities, not just big cities, but small fishing villages and smaller towns that you know aren't, aren't city size, um, the world's going to change. Now, we need to be honest and accurate about thinking about this and get over some of the emotion. Because the fact is, as we were talking about a minute ago, in geologic history, sea level following the ice age cycles, which were natural cycles, moved up and down about 400 feet, 120 meters. That's really hard for us to comprehend, but it's simple geologic history. As you know from your geologic training, I mean, the ice ages went on for about two and a half million years, what we call the Pleistocene, right? And they happened about every 100,000 years. Most people don't know that. But the implications of that are both exciting and profound and scary. I mean, 11,000 years ago, the Great Lakes, Cape Cod, and uh, Long Island did not exist. That Those were artifacts of the retreat of the last glacier 11,000 years ago. So while we tend to think, you know, the world is permanent, it's not. It changes. But as you know, geologic time is different than human time. But what we're seeing now is that the collision of the two, because we're melting the ice sheets fast enough in Antarctica and Greenland that we can see meters of sea level rise. And we can't predict it accurately because we don't know how warm the world is. And even if we did know how we were going to make our energy and how warm the world would get, we still can't predict accurately how two miles of ice on Antarctica and Greenland will, will exactly melt by the year 2100 or, the, or 30 years from now. Any more than we can predict exactly how many pandemic deaths there will be in the next year. There are a lot of, or, or when the next San Francisco earthquake will happen or when the next mudslide will happen on the Pacific Coast Highway. Um, you know, it's unfortunate, but those things can't be predicted and we've got to get over it. It's just like, we don't know how long we're going to live. We can go and get by life insurance and they'll tell us according to actual tables that the probability is we will live to a certain age, but that's not a prediction of how long we'll live, nothing like it. And the fact is these numbers about sea level rise and climate change, um, looking out 30 years and beyond, they're just projections, they're models. And we have to be satisfied with that because that's the best you can do. But the fact is the models tell us enough that we need to start planning differently for the future. And it starts with the coastline, which is why I'm so delighted to be here talking on shorewards. Yeah, no, it is at the coast where we're experiencing a lot. We used to say that that's where everything flows downhill and comes to the coast. And now we're realizing that as the water flows a little bit uphill with rising sea level, that the coast is caught between those two, those two directional forces. And yeah, it's, a, it's going to be a significant change along the coastline in the years to come. Um, I like the term you used once in your book, swag, which I think of as, you know, the you go to a fancy party and you get some nice little swag treat, but um, more the, the scientifically wild-ass guests that we often will be doing. And I think that that kind of leads us into maybe a little bit of talk about the recent IPCC report that came out, which is certainly far beyond wild-ass guessing, but scientifically-based projections. And the um, Antarctic asterisk you talk about. And so what are the changes you saw in those two reports from the earlier one to now that um, 
you you found interesting or I, I, I've just skimmed it to begin with, so I can't really go deep into what's part of the new IPCC report, but I was surprised at the um, sea level amounts that were included there. Sure. So thanks. Um, so the new report came out August 9th, and again, it only comes out every six or seven years. So it's a really seminal report. It's an amazing undertaking uh, by hundreds of scientists who generally volunteer their time, and it surveys thousands of peer-reviewed articles and has to pass, everything that's in it has to pass an amazing scrutiny of different cycles of review and public comment. I think there were 57,000 comments to this, to, to the draft version that each have to be answered publicly uh, on, online on their website. I mean, it's an amazingly rigorous process. But to get to the point, what did I take away? It's a 4,000-page report, and I won't pretend to have read it yet, but I did quickly zero in on some of the facts about sea level rise, of course, as you're alluding to. So here are the couple of uh, takeaways from this voluminous study. They narrowed the um, expected temperature range as we add greenhouse gases to the atmosphere. Um, Just simplifying and netting things out, it looks like you know, we're going to have something like two degrees of warming, that's Celsius, and you can pretty much double that for Fahrenheit, just to keep it simple and round figures. Um, Since the pre-industrial era, when we've been putting greenhouse gas in the atmosphere, and when that was demonstrated in 1859 by uh, John Tyndall in London to trap heat, and it's easily proven that carbon dioxide traps heat, as does methane and nitrous oxide, other clear gases. But as the CO2 level in the atmosphere has gone up to 415 parts per million at the moment, which is 40% higher than in 2 million years of Earth history, um, we are seeing the effect where it is warming the planet. And that is now without controversy in the scientific community. Um, it, it's it, and they, they're very clear about that in their wording. The doubts are gone about whether carbon dioxide and methane trap heat in the atmosphere and whether humans are responsible for elevating the level of carbon dioxide, the, the kind of preeminent greenhouse gas, um, beyond its normal range of, and I use round figures here, but 180 to 280 is the normal range of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere for millions of years, and it's now at 415 and it's trapping heat. Now, again, there was climate change before human uh, activity of driving cars and burning fossil fuel, but that was driven by some by the natural um, climate cycle, the Milankovitch cycle, which is, uh, without getting technical, it's a change in the elliptical orbit, tilt and wobble of the earth. Uh, the ice age cycles that happen every 100,000 years can be thought of like giant summer and winter cycles. Instead of happening every year, they happen every 100,000 years. And what we're seeing now in the the IPCC report with incredibly detailed science that's actually quite cautious in that they don't stick their necks out, has said is that the simple numbers are we've warmed the earth 1.2 degrees Celsius, a, a little over two degrees Fahrenheit. They're saying, if we make the most strenuous efforts to get off fossil fuels and slow the emission of greenhouse gases and even take greenhouse gases out of the atmosphere, maybe we can stop the warming at 1.5 degrees Celsius. It's another 
three-tenths of a degree warming from where we are today. But they say it would take extraordinary effort. We'd have to stop, we'd have to get off fossil fuels in the next 20 or 30 years, which is an amazing undertaking. And that's way beyond just driving some electric cars and putting in charging stations. That would be an, a, an incredible effort and we are not yet making that effort. But on the current path, we're headed to over two degrees Celsius, which is effectively double the warming we've already had. And here's the simple takeaway. Just look at how the weather patterns are changing in a warming world. Exactly what was predicted, more wildfires, higher high temperature days, more of them, more drought, more rainfall, because as you warm the oceans, it evaporates and that water has to come down as rain or snow. Um, all of these symptoms were predicted and are now happening in the headlines around the world. So here's the scary thing. Even if we could stop the warming at 1.5 degrees, up from the current 1.2 degrees above pre-industrial, that's a warmer world. The ice is gonna melt faster, there'd be more uh, energy for fires, et cetera. If we don't do the right thing and we follow on our current path and reach two or three degrees, double the excess warming we've already had, we won't recognize this planet. And that's not an exaggeration. And they made that statement. It, so we face a real crossroads. We either have to work as hard as possible to slow the warming and know that even that will be a challenge in terms of environmental conditions for us. If we don't, if we continue on the path at the moment, and even with what's being proposed as goals to slow the warming, we're gonna face a much warmer world. And we have to start designing for that in terms of where we live, our infrastructure, um, really our whole civilization. And that's such a hard thing for people to consider doing. I've always driven along the coast at that spot. We've always gotten that beach house. We've always seen that, that idea that these things are are fixed, as you say, is, is really, um, they're not ephemeral in the way that we think of things vanishing like soap bubbles. But in the longer term, a lot of those, we've always done that situations aren't going to be possible in the future. And that's, uh, people don't like to be told that. And that's where your idea of glass half empty, half full is a, a really positive message to be giving. But, um, back on the IPCC for a second, one of the things I found very intriguing in that report was the um, attribution portions of it that we now, scientists now feel very confident in attributing weather changes to our influence and being able to say with strong certainty that many of the fires, many of the conditions we're experiencing now are not just weather, but they're part of a climate change that we're experiencing. That this Anthropocene era that we're in is really indicating both that humans are influencing the planet in a great way, but then also we're seeing those changes in almost real time, in our lifetimes, we're seeing them go on. Each year we're seeing them. And so what are some of the glass half full 
messages you find out of that kind of dire understanding of where we sit today with with climate change? What what cities are doing stuff that you thought was really great? Because part of your book is such a wonderful depiction of different places you've been and the reactions you've gotten from people about your books, about your messaging, and then things you've taken away from different places, different locations that are where people and communities are really coming together to address this. Well, thanks. Um, so the nation that or, and city that's doing probably the most progressive look is Singapore at the moment. It's a, it's a fairly small country of about 6 million people, of course, in Asia. And the prime minister has gone on record as of a year or two ago saying that rising sea level is the greatest challenge they face this century. And they're aiming that everything will, will um, look to four meters. And so that's about 13 feet above current sea level as a benchmark to plan for, which is very aggressive. In the United States, Boston is probably the city that's doing the best comprehensive look at a world of, I think it's like five feet of sea level rise, so a meter and a half. Um, They've been through various um, plans and manifestations of this, but they they are looking ahead to an era when the city will look quite different and they're being bold about it. Um, other cities from San Francisco to Miami are also looking at what they term sea level rise, but they tend to be more modest thresholds, typically looking at maybe a foot or two. Um, it's a good, you know, it's fine to start there. Let me circle back to your question though, about how do we, um, where's, what's the glass half full that I talk about? And again, I, I, because I, I'm absolutely clear on what's going to happen. I mean, not exactly the timing, but I know that sea level will be 10 or 20 feet higher at some point in the next couple of centuries, which is just more than most people can think about. Um, and we will lose trillions of dollars of coastal assets, buildings, infrastructure, and communities to the ocean. That's terrible. I mean, it's devastating and even hard to comprehend. But, you know, it's kind of like getting older. We're, you've got to face it at some point. And at some point, we're going to die and we're, we're going to pass things on to the next generation. And that's just life. And we have to be realistic about this. Sea level was higher in the past. It was most recently, the last time it was higher was 122,000 years ago. It was 25 feet, seven meters higher than at present. So without even being accepting that it's caused by man, the, the truth is geologic history tells us we need to think differently about the coast and the fact that it's been level, sea level's been level for 6,000 years, recorded human history. But the way, one of the ways I, as you know from the book that I put that into a positive challenge is to say, listen, we're gonna lose $10 trillion to the ocean, give or take, whatever the figure is. We're gonna have to create that same economic value of assets and infrastructure and communities because the sea is gonna be higher. And at some point we will build assets and infrastructure to live at that higher sea level. And the earlier that somebody accepts that and sees future opportunity, the better they will facilitate the transition. In other words, if somebody knew about the internet 50 years ago, they could have done some amazing things to prepare for it and profit from it, frankly. But just like the state highway or the the highway system that was built, what, 100 years ago after the invention of cars, people who could see that would would see where the world was headed and could both 
build businesses around it, profit from it, or just help the world from a social standpoint, social engineering and adaptation. If you, the point is, if you can see the future, you can not only adapt for you and your family, you can pave the way for others to adapt. You can be a visionary. And when I look at sea level rise and realize that there is no way to stop the sea from rising quickly, we can slow it, but we really have to prepare for it becomes an opportunity. We get over, and again, that 30 year time frame allows us to think forward, whether we think we'll be alive in 30 years, and most people think they will be alive in 30 years, um, gives us a perspective to start designing differently for the future. And it's within the financial cycle, what we call the mortgage cycle, that finances most buildings and infrastructure. So gets the interest of bankers and the financial community. So it's all, it's all about how do we look at this so it becomes an opportunity and a challenge to think about leaving a better place for future generations. Right. And it is such an important message that we need to get across. But as you say, it needs to be done in a, a positive way. I think we've we've heard enough horrors that um, one more about the climate is just going to roll off people's backs and they're going to shut down. But the idea that we do have opportunities is a great one. And do you, so you've seen that Singapore and Boston are starting to do um, good planning and thinking um, on a big scale about how they're going to be addressing the changes in climate and the changes to their communities. Um, do you think that those are going to be short-term good stories that can be kind of bellwethers for the next group of communities to take on and say, we can do something like Boston, we can do it better, we can be be paying attention to all these things? Are those going to be uh, opportunities to have some good um, lessons learned so that in that 30-year period you're talking about, other communities can learn from those areas and move also forward into that more adaptive future? Well, each community needs to look at this um, in, in their own um, situation. I'm in Puerto Rico today uh, working on a program to help uh, people in Puerto Rico consider sea level rise as they're still rebuilding from the terrible Hurricane Maria back uh, in 2017, uh, Puerto Rico has an, an advantage in that it has high elevation. While there's a lot of low-lying development that will be vulnerable to sea level rise, there's plenty of elevation. This island goes up like 4,000 feet uh, to the rainforest, and it's a great place to think about forward thinking and the opportunity to design better for the future starting now. And, and so very unique situation compared to a low-lying city like Miami or Fort Lauderdale or or Jacksonville or, or uh, you know, places all over the world, frankly, Bangladesh, Vietnam. Uh, so um, I, I think that the forward thinking look of Boston, as I said, or Singapore is, is a useful inspiration, but each city has to look at this in their own geographical or geological circumstances. As you know, South Florida is porous limestone. And some of the talks about putting in a seawall around parts of Miami 
will be storm surge barriers, but will not be sea level barriers because the water would just percolate up through the rock far inland behind this behind the barrier. So we need to look at things geologically and from an engineering standpoint to your to your pedigree um, and background. Um, we also need to um, realize that our short-term desire to do things like beach replenishment, which is in, in many of your uh, audiences, you know, wheelhouse, which is uh, very understandable that people want to restore the beach to what it was when they bought the condo or, or you know, just the whole value of their community. That's perfectly understandable and, and beach replenishment's happening more and more around the world. But we, if you put it in the context that what happens when sea level is five feet higher, we see it differently. And also the cost of beach replenishment is getting more and more expensive because there's a shortage of sand that has sufficient quality, you know, to, to restore a beach well, and it's becoming more and more expensive. So I don't say whether we should do it or not. I just say, let's think about where this is headed. And just thinking we want the world to be like what it was 10, 20, 30, 40 years ago, as we remember it, isn't good enough because the world changes. We thought geologically that, uh, geologic time was like on a 200,000 years was kind of a, a data point in geologic time, as you'll know, Leslie. But the truth is now we're seeing things happening by decades. And and uh, as you talk about the Anthropocene era, we, we've changed the world. Um, the other point I, I kind of skipped over before that I want to make a distinction. There's a big difference between flooding from short-term events what we think of as disasters and sea level rise. And it's worth distinguishing that because if we think the problem is flooding, that's like saying the problem is I'm sick. That's not enough information. If I'm sick with COVID, that's one thing. If I'm sick with heart disease or cancer, that's another thing. And each thing requires its own treatment. And flooding is not a problem. It's the manifestation of five or six or seven different things. So let me just go through them quickly. Storms, we know what that's like, particularly a hurricane with crashing waves. Then there's heavy rainfall, and we're getting heavier record rainfall, just piling up five or 10 inches on the ground. The third is runoff. Rainfall runs downhill to lower elevations. It could be a lower street in Miami, or it could be down a ravine here in Puerto Rico or in New Hampshire. That runoff is different than rainfall. So storms, rain, runoff. Then there's king tides. We talk about these king tide events The uh, every following the moon cycles, the 19 year tidal cycle or 18.6 year cycle and uh, kind of catches people off guards, but a blue sky, sunny day flooding events, they're called in Florida now, even a, without a storm in the area and, and blue sky, clear, beautiful weather. If the tide cycles right, you get flooding on the streets. That didn't used to happen. That's because of sea level rise kind of bumping up the baseline. So storms, rain, runoff, and tides are intermittent events, and you can recover. Sea level rise is the opposite. It's the drip filling the bucket that you can't see hardly. Hard to notice. It's only about a quarter of an inch a year, but it's cumulative and it's accelerating. And that's what makes it different. And it, as sea level raises the base level, the temporary flooding during a storm or coastal rainfall and runoff event or, or tide will be ever higher. So we have to distinguish the short-term weather-driven flooding or the cyclical tidal flooding from sea level rise, which is due to melting the ice in Antarctica and Greenland or the thermal expansion of seawater. Then on top of that, there's coastal erosion. And coastal erosion is either a natural event 
or exacerbated by putting out a jetty or a groin that interrupts the flow of sand along the beach where it piles up on one side and depletes on the other, as you know, and your audience is very familiar with. The, uh, um, but then you get massive erosion during storms. But that's not flooding per se, although it can look like it has the same effect. But erosion is different than the five forms of flooding I listed. And then I should note that um, there is one other kind of super flooding, which is tsunamis, really is an entirely different character it, because it's driven by earthquakes. And in some ways it could cause flooding, but it's such an anomaly. I, I tend not to include it in my five forms of flooding plus erosion that may help your listeners conceptualize and categorize the kinds of flooding we face and erosion. That's true. And, and you're right that we need to get to the source of the problem before we start thinking about solutions. Um, sometimes elevation or moving higher is, is sort of a catch-all solution if we can't pinpoint what the problems are. But on a, on a broad community scale, we need to be more informed about where our, why we are having problems and find ways to be strategic and, and smarter about how we address those in the future. I agree with you so much. But now, after your, I guess you're on virtual book tours this year as opposed to the real thing, or maybe you're yes. doing a bit of both. After the book tour is finished, what, what are your plans next? Do you have a third book in you, do you think? Or are you going to? I don't know. I'm starting to think about it. Um, it's a little early. We're still promoting this book, of course. And it's getting a great response. But um, I'm working on this nonprofit called the Rising Seas Institute to take and develop this information and put it out to different professions in a form that will um, will speak to them, from architects to engineers to bankers to you know urban planners. And um, that's where I'm putting a lot of my effort at the moment. In fact, it's what I'm uh, the platform I'm working on down here in Puerto Rico, where we're creating the Caribbean Center for Rising Seas. I want to really work on helping different professions and different communities conceptualize the sea level rise threat as opposed to the other kinds of flooding and put this into the, uh, the uh, framework of what's unavoidable and what are the ranges of what could happen so that we begin planning for the future as early as possible. And I think it's best to do that in the framework of a nonprofit and to work with engineering companies and other organizations. But so besides um, besides selling my books and doing keynote talks, which are mostly virtual these days, as you suggest, uh, and I'm working on that nonprofit, the Rising Seas Institute. Yeah, well, I hope that goes well for you. Um, is there any VR in that virtual reality sort of showing the the consequences? We will be doing some of that. We're kind of early stage, and we haven't gotten to virtual reality yet. There are there are many um, you know examples of virtual reality, as you probably know, to kind of look at the world and under different circumstances. And one of them is with higher sea level. So there there's lots of you know fairly simple. Um, visualization tools these days. And uh, and that's great. But most people, again, if if you show them what the world will look like 30 years from now, in most cases, they disconnect with that and they, um, uh, you know, to kind of dismiss it. And so it's a matter of how do we, how do we first develop the understanding of why this is unavoidable and show the correlation between global average temperature, 
now 1.2 degrees Celsius above normal, carbon dioxide levels and sea level. And if we plot the, those three, which you've seen in my graph, which is in my book, as we look at the ice age cycles every 100,000 years roughly, and we see how sea level changes and how carbon dioxide changes, both historically by nature and now that we're changing carbon dioxide levels, it begins to, to sink into people that, no, this is going to happen. And while driving electric cars and reducing our carbon footprint are really important, they're not going to stop sea level rising, and they're certainly not going to get it going back down to where it used to be. So it's a matter of connecting with people in language that they can understand, non-technical language, and speaking to people in their professional lives, like architects, engineers, bankers, attorneys, etc., to show them how this has an effect on what they do in their day job. And there's an opportunity and a risk or liability if they don't do it. And I find that, that putting that message to various groups, showing them how this is both an opportunity to be on the leading edge and to, to really be a leader, or if they put their head in the sands to potentially be liable or negligent for not planning with sea level rise in mind, that seems to have the greatest um, receptivity and um, response from people I talk to. Yeah, definitely. And I think in your book, you do a wonderful job of um, pulling out the jargon and being just straight, plain talking, plain speaking about the issues we'll be facing. Um, I want to be uh, respectful of your time. I have two other questions for you that um, should be fairly quick to answer, but um, I'm wondering what books or authors have inspired you along your climate change, sea level rise path. <clears throat> and then due to the audience, we have to always find out what your favorite beach is. <laughs> wow. Um, I just read a new book that, that I find really remarkable and relevant called The Precipice, just published this year by Toby Ord. And he talks about the relative risk existential risks, which is a powerful or high bar, you know, what could really doom us as a species. And he does it in a brilliant way of looking at everything from asteroids to natural disasters, to pandemics, to climate change. And I've, I've really found that useful. And uh, he concludes, we, we, we may continue in our existence, although we are under threats of existence, if you look long-term. And um, that's kind of a way out there look, but, but a, uh, most current because uh, I, I've just read it, I guess. Um, the the books about geologic history that were really helpful, the, I think the Two Mile Time Machine was one, and um, um, but I think that's by Richard Alley, if I'm not mistaken, but there were two books like that, that, that decoded climate uh, going back in history through the, looking at the ice cores, et cetera, was really helpful. And, um, Oh, let's see. There's so many I read. Um, I think the, uh, oh, and, and I guess Wally Broker's book, the late Wally Broker, uh, the, the Ocean Conveyor Belt, which kind of decoded um, climate change and the Gulf Stream, which is a, another thing that's in the new IPCC report. It really does look like the Gulf Stream is slowing down and that has an ominous effect. And the, the seminal work on that in a very readable book was, was The Great Ocean Conveyor by Wallace Broker. So I think those, would, those books would be my top three. As far as beaches, I, um, although I live in South Florida now, I 
lived half my life in, in the Bahamas, or not, again, not, not half, but 26 years. And uh, the beaches of Grand Bahama, where I lived for many decades, are in some ways my favorite, I guess. Um, I, there are tens of miles of them. But of course, as you say, every, every, many beaches have their, their calling. Uh, the beaches in Turks and Caicos and Providenciales were uh, just stunning in Turquoise Bay. Um, so I guess those are the two that pop to mind. Yeah, wonderful beaches to visit and ones we hope will be around for a while longer because those communities depend so much on tourism that um, those beaches can be critical for them having a way to find alternatives to the conditions they'll be seeing in the future. So thank you so much, John. This has been wonderful talking with you. Thank you, Leslie. I really enjoyed it. I wish we had another hour. I, uh, I wish we did too. Maybe we can do this again sometime. Let's do but, it. I'd be, glad to. <laughs> Definitely. I'd be glad to. And everyone, thank you so much for listening to this episode of Shore Words. I think our time with John Englander has been amazingly interesting and educational. I hope you enjoyed it. Please listen to other Shore Words podcasts and other ASPN podcasts. Um, equally fascinating people are on each week and worth trying to um, dip your toes into some of what's going on in, in the, the shores all over. Thanks again, John, and have a great rest of your day. Mm-hmm.